Hello and welcome to the Cat Maste Chronicles podcast. We have exciting, interesting and powerful stories from pet owners about their projects, businesses and ventures. I'm your host, Michelle Adams, founder of Chatty Cats Care, London's professional cat sitting company. Join me as I dive deep into conversation with pet owners to chat about their individual journeys and of course, their beloved pets. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Cat Master Chronicles podcast. This week we are joined by Wilfred Emmanuel Jones and he is one inspirational man who has built a successful farm brand called The Black Farmer. The journey that led up to the creation of The Black Farmer is so interesting and informative for so many people, especially those who want to turn their passion into a business. When I listen to Wilfred speak, I feel like I'm listening to a father figure voice of wisdom. I make notes of everything he says and apply this to my own life and business. So I know for a fact that you're going to really enjoy listening to this episode. Lastly, Wilfred's wife is a big animal lover and has dogs and cats in the house. But Wilfred has strong beliefs about animal welfare and ensuring that all livestock is treated with compassion and care and we'll find out more about that later on in the episode. So without further ado thank you so much for joining us today Wilfred. I have been following you for quite a long time and I've listened to you speak on various other podcasts. I absolutely knew I needed to speak to you and share this with my audience. I've introduced you briefly already, but if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, that would be amazing. Well, thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. It's a real honor. I do like to try and tell my story to as many um, people as possible. And hopefully my story might inspire them to change things they want to change in their lives or to feel that they have the courage to do what they want to do. Um, So back to my story. Um, In fact, I am one of those people who is part of the Windrush generation. So I was, in fact, born in Jamaica. I was born in a place called um, Clarendon, Frankfield. And for those of you who don't know the island, it's it's right in the heart of the island, and it's what they call the bush or farming country. So if you went there, even today, you'd see quite a lot of farmers, subsistence farmers, working the land. So one of the things I always think is quite interesting to look back at is, in fact, a lot of people who came to this country in the 50s came from rural backgrounds. And so living in a rural um, space is very much part of my DNA, as it were. Mm. But obviously, when my parents came over to this country, they went to where the work was, and that happened to be in the cities. And in my case, my parents decided to settle in Birmingham, a place called Small Heath in Birmingham. And that Small Heath is one of those classic inner city areas that um, it's full of people either, in my case, it was either people of the Irish or um, people from India. And then there were us, the people from um, the Caribbean. Mm. So it's one of those um, areas that was pretty poor. I mean, there was nothing romantic about the place. Um, It's been years since I've been back and I don't really have any fond memories at all about living in Small Heath. It was pretty poor. And, to make things worse, in a sense, my I'm from a family of 11. Yeah. And there's 11 of us that were brought up in a two-up-two-down terrace house. <laughs> so you can imagine that was pretty cramped. And um, I, we were so poor that my mom really had to try and feed the whole family with on one chicken. And it's not like those wonderful roasting chickens that you now get in the supermarkets today. We were so poor that the only chicken that my mother could afford was the old broiler um, hens, the ones that actually were so tough. It took days of marinating and seasoning in order to make it sort of tender. 
And um, I remember that, um, you know, there was obviously never really enough meat on to feed 11 people. And to this day, I have this real fetish for chicken bones because we had to try and get every bit of nutrition out of the out of the sort of chicken. So we were very, very, very poor. And not only were we very, very poor, we didn't really have much sort of hopes and aspirations that our lives would improve. But the important part of my story probably begins from here. And that is when my father had an allotment and it was my job as the oldest boy to look after this allotment. And this allotment really became my oasis away from the misery that I was living in. I loved being on, in this allotment so much that it really sort of resonated with me. And I could remember at the age of 11, 11 years old, I made myself a promise that one day, one day I would own my own farm. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but it was a promise that I lodged into the back of my mind and that everything, everything that I subsequently did with my life was to try and get into a position to buy a farm. Now, it took me some 40 years to get into the position to buy this farm. And it is a long story of how I got from that dream to actually buying the farm. But one of the things that I'm always advocating to people and it may seem like a very silly thing to say, but I think it's very, very important. The most important thing in life is to have the audacity to dream and to dream big. The thing that frustrates most people is that they do not actually allow themselves to dream big. And when you dream big, you have to have the courage to put it out there, to tell people about it. Too many people think that they should keep, keep their ideas seek it keep it quiet that is a mistake you need to voice your dreams because if you don't voice it the universe doesn't hear people who might be able to help you achieve it won't hear you need to voice it it's so true we we speak about that quite a lot on this podcast about you know manifesting and speaking things into existence and and you're so right it's so important um because otherwise it stays as a dream. It, it doesn't become reality. And I believe that if you're really passionate about something and you really want to do something, then you'll just never be satisfied really and truly until you're really doing something that you, you are passionate about. And I think it is about putting it out there and the universe will make it happen. Yeah. You will not be able to join the dots of yourself. But when I look back at my life, I'm fortunate enough to be 63. So I could look back at my life and I could join up the dots by looking backwards. Mm -hmm. And I would never, ever, ever imagined that some of the experiences that I had on the way to achieve my dream, I could never have predicted. It could never have been worked out. And I think that's where you really need to trust, trust the universe. Trust that if you're really passionate about something, it will happen and things will come your way that you could never even dream about that would make make it happen. So that's the message that I'd like to give out to people. Thank you. That's, that's a really good message to give out. I think sometimes people face barriers um, and that can kind of put them off in a way. For example, um, what I really admired about you um, was um, the fact that you had a bad relationship with education like myself and and that was due to your dyslexia which I also had which I didn't discover until much later um, when I went to university in my um, late 20s it kind of took that long for you know me to realize that, that that's what the issue was um, and as a child at school you know teachers made me feel like I wasn't going to amount to anything um, was was it like that for you? Um, when did you find out you actually had dyslexia yourself? Well, you see, that's dyslexia is one of the another one of my passion subjects. Yeah. Because um, when I was at school, and the sort of school that I went to, I went to in those days they used to call them secondary moderns. I went to it was called old no secondary modern, and in a sense, they didn't really educate us there; they policed us because they didn't really think that we would sort of amount to much. 
And because um, the law said you had to send people to school to be educated, we were sent to school, but they didn't really have any expectation of us. And then <clears throat> if you're in an environment where they don't have much expectation of you, and then they're trying to teach you the basics, and then you've got this black guy who can't read and write, it, in those days, it was a real big head scratcher. People just thought it was just me being difficult mm. or me being silly. You know, what do you mean you can't spell this word? What do you mean you can't? It just didn't make sort of sense. Yeah. And then what it does, or what it did to me, it makes you become more of a rebel and you find a way of surviving. And I always felt that I had a problem. And therefore, I had to become very sophisticated in hiding that problem. So I wouldn't have the mickey taken out of me by by my classmates mm -hmm. or the teachers um, just thinking I was being quite difficult. And I can remember that I spent a lot of time um, playing truant when I was at school because education was really difficult and hard. Not only was it difficult and hard, you know, every time I opened my mouth, I was constantly demonstrating to people that there was something odd and strange about me. So um, I spent most of my life being really ashamed of not being able to do the fundamentals, whether that was reading, whether it was writing, you know, a letter. I was always, always getting it wrong. And uh, I spent a lot of time um, being frustrated at the fact that I just couldn't do the basics. Um, and it's only when I became successful that I had the courage to start telling people about what it was like to be um, um, dyslexic. And what I subsequently learned about dyslexia is that it's a gift. Mm -hmm. It really is about, you know, you have the type of brain that um, um, processes information differently. And um, that even today, there are still so many people in education that do not um, understand dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Not only do they not understand it, but they don't put anything into place to help people who have those particular issues. And that one of the things I think is really fascinating is that, in fact, a lot of very, very successful people are dyslexic. Yeah. And um, it'd be worth someone doing a study on why is it that um, some of the great innovators, the great change makers, really come from a dyslexic place. And I think if, if anybody wanted my advice about it, it is this. The, the, the better you are at um, passing exams, operating in the, this sort of westernized um, um, educational system, the less creative you are. Mm. It just means that the education that we, we receive in this country or in the West generally is to be able to operate um, in professions where you need to be able to um, analyze, um, understand, reason, and um, that's logical. Absolutely. And, and I think yeah, those skills have been essential um, for um, the careers and, and jobs in, in what I call the information age. So, you know, a doctor, as far as I'm concerned, is just a very sophisticated computer or an accountant or a solicitor. Yeah. So some of, the, some of the professions that your parents and my parents would have desperately wanted their children to, to, to get into because they would have seen that if they're able to be a teacher, an accountant, a solicitor, they'd be set up for life. You need to have a certain type of brain, and that brain tends to be very much what I geared towards left-brainers. And left-brainers are people who understand they're logical, they're rational, they're quite linear in their thinking. Now, creativity comes from the right side of the brain, and which is that they're not rational, they're not logical, they actually are able to think outside the box. And I think what well, in the in the next 10, 15 years. All of those people who spent a lifetime developing the skills to work in professions, left-brain professions, will find that they will not have a role to play. Because now that we live in this world of um, artificial intelligence, things are outsourced. That, you, you know, I, I say things like, there'll come a time when a nurse will be more important than a doctor. Because you could now go onto Google 
and you could find out more about a condition or an illness than a consultant um, can tell you. And then all a consultant does is tell you what you need to do in terms of either relieving um, the symptoms or, or whatever. And yeah. if your computer could tell you that, why would you need a doctor? But you'll always need a nurse because a computer can't be sympathetic. A, 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 a computer can't connect with you as a human being. And that, for me, is one of the things I would be warning people to look out for. The people who are going to prosper in the future are the ones who know the value and importance of communicating with as human beings, things that artificial intelligence cannot do, computers can't do. So um, you won't need bankers, you won't need solicitors, you won't need accountants, you won't need doctors, because all of those things could either be outsourced or they could be done by computers. All the thinking which is outside the box, which only certain types of human beings can do, are the things that are going to be valued in the future. So I would see in the next few years, people are going to be saying, oh, I'm dyslexic. Everybody's going to want to sort of be owning the sort of dyslexic badge because it would be seen as a gift. Yeah. yeah. And in our day, it was seen as a a badge of being thick and stupid. Yeah, but gonna... Say that again. You could, you, I was I was embarrassed by it. Exactly, it made people embarrassed. But it's people are going to start thinking. Actually, you'll be seeing it on applications. Are you dyslexic? Because it's going to be seen as a bonus, not not a disadvantage. Because it'd be recognised that we think differently, and therefore we think more conceptually. We could think outside the box. That's the stuff that people are going to be interested in. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. It's so true. Um, do you think that that's the reason why you didn't really get on well with with being in the army? Because army is very, I know it's very regimented and, you know, you have to think in a particular way. It, is that the reason why you feel, you know, maybe that the army wasn't for you? Because I know that's what you, you joined when you left school, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, there was nothing wrong with the army. It's just that, you know, if you have a feeling that you're as thick as shit, and that you're, you know, something wrong with you, you go around with a chip on your shoulder. Mm. And one of the things, and that's why dyslexia is really important to me, because one of the things that I think is really important to people with dyslexia is that you've got to make sure you build that person's confidence. Because if you have a confidence in self, you could get on in life, you could do whatever you want to do. But if you have a lack of confidence, you then behave accordingly. And that, um, if you're sort of hiding this terrible secret that somehow you're not good enough and you're just going around with a bit, bit bravado, A, it's exhausting, B, people don't like it. And, you know, many things that I tried in my life, I was a failure at. And I would say I was a failure at those things because I had a chip on my shoulder about being dyslexic because I wasn't, you know, I didn't feel equal to people around me. And, yeah, and so for me, you know, I didn't, leave school with any qualifications I didn't go to university I just would never have got in because I just wouldn't have been able to pass even the entrance exams mm. so it became very clear to me very early on in life that um, the only way that I was going to ever put food on the table was to go and do my own thing I knew that I would never ever fit into any corporate structure because Everything that they need in order to exist in those environments, I didn't have any of those qualities. So in a way, I was quite lucky that I discovered very earlier on that there was no way for me but to do something myself. Yeah. Uh, and I think perhaps a lot of dyslexics find them, they find that out sooner or later that they need to do their own thing because corporate structures... Um, have a totally different way of operating and I would find it too frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's funny that you talk about the chip on the shoulder as well, because I feel like personally for me, like a lot of it is trauma as well. And just the past of kind of being told that I wouldn't kind of amount to anything or I couldn't do anything. I doubt myself and I really shocked myself for the fact that I actually did manage to somehow get two degrees. I have no idea how I managed it, but I still doubted myself like because of everything that I kind of experienced in the past. 
I was writing and I, I it was taking me absolutely ages, Wilfred. Just to do one assignment would take me hours, days, weeks even, where some people could kind of complete that in a day and they get that done. But because I kept doubting myself, I just kept feeling like it wasn't good enough, you know? But you see, <coughs> sorry, you see, one of the things that's interesting about you is that you are a demonstration of what could happen with tenacity. Because I'm a great believer in this, is that you could achieve anything you want in life, anything that you want, and you only need two things in order to achieve the achieve it. And any successful person you meet in life will have these two things. The first thing is that you need to be ruthlessly, ruthlessly focused. And what I mean by being ruthlessly focused is that you have the ability to sort of block out the white noise of everyday living. You know, people's lives are full of nonsense, things that are not that not important, that are irrelevant. It takes up so much time. If you dedicate your time to focus on what is important to you, it doesn't matter how long it takes you, it doesn't matter what price you've got to pay, you'll focus to get it done. So you demonstrated phenomenal and um, focus. Thank you. And the other thing, the second thing, which is equally more important, as important in order to achieve success, is that you need to be passionate. And the re people say to me, well, what do you mean by passion? And I says, look, the thing about passion is that it helps you get over all the hurdles that life throws up. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It's, it, it's irrational. It's a driving force. It drives it. To, to do things that most people just think are just not um, achievable. And they say, well, you know, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, you know, you look at somebody who is in love and you see that this person is so driven to do things that, you know, as a bystander, you think, my God, this doesn't make sense. Or, you know, they're really sort of pushing themselves. Now, part of being successful in life and being an entrepreneur is about having that sort of passion that you don't let things come get in the way if it's going to take you five, six hours to write something, you do it. You're just driven to do it. So what, in a sense, what you have demonstrated is that you had all the tools to be successful because you were prepared to do what it took to do it. And that is the real two really important elements that you need to become successful. So good on you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, just to go back to the farming, because I'm really interested in that as well. So um, you went on to buy a farm in Devon, uh, where you later created the brand The Black Farmer, of course. Um, but during that time, you received criticism from the rural residents in Devon to and the urban city dwellers. Um, what sort of comments were they making? Um, and I guess there was quite a difference between both of them as well. Well, it's really interesting. Every time I have a conversation with them, they always ask me this question, you know, what is it like for a black person moving to rural Britain? Because the truth is there's no black people there. I mean, there, there are a few, but there's still, you know, it doesn't compare with being in um, urban Britain. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I say to people is this. When my parents came over to this country in the 50s, uh, they earned us the second and the third generation to the right to go and live in any part of Britain that we choose to. And the reason why they earned us that right is because we know the story. They had to go through hell. Uh, you know, the racism, the prejudice they had to go through in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. They went through hell. Yeah. And then what happened is that then they sort of, in, in a sense, for their own security, their own well-being, is that they then sort of stayed in these urban enclaves, whether that's Birmingham, Manchester, uh, London, Cardiff, and didn't really feel um, they should sort of branch out into other areas. Yeah. But I really do think it's a responsibility for those of us um, uh, second and third generation to branch out and really claim the rest of Britain as our own. Because you never really truly belong into a country, I don't think, until you own land. You become part of the landed um, people. If you become part of the people who own land. Mm. And um, because I had this dream to buy this farm, whatever anybody said, whether that was my black friends in, uh, in London 
or whether that was the white rural types in um, Devon, it was not going to get in in the way. Yeah. And that, you know, I can remember when I was telling my friends in London that I'm going to buy a place down in Devon, they thought, whoa, but they lynch black people down there. This idea that, you know, you're going into this sort of foreign territory where black people are treated differently. And I can remember also when some of the people, when I was um, putting up um, polytunnels, they thought um, that was a cover for growing cannabis, growing weed. So ah, yeah. everybody has their stereotypes about, you know, what they think a black person should be doing. But I've always thought it is my responsibility not to be defined by um, my background or the color of my skin. And therefore, I see that I'm a sort of pathfinder. I'm setting the way for people like yourself or younger generations to feel they could go and live in any part of their, uh, any part of Britain, and they don't need to make an excuse for doing so. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and I like that one comment that you kind of made about wanting to create a brand that bridged the two worlds. And you also wanted to be recognized as a British brand and not an ethnic brand. And I've heard so many people say that. Um, and, and, you know, can you tell us a bit about that? Why why was that so important to you? <coughs> well, one of the things I, well, that was very important to me is the, um, well, well, the first thing is this, is that I believe it is outsiders who see opportunity. Mm. Um, and that when I went down, when I bought this place down in Devon, I noticed this massive gap between urban and rural Britain. And I saw that, therefore, there was an opportunity because, you know, it's a bit like going into two different worlds, you know, to, so you're going to foreign countries. So I thought, well, I'm going to create a brand that's A, going to try and bridge the gap. And then also I want to have a brand that also says that a black person can be very British, part of the mainstream, rather than being seen just as an ethnic minority, being seen as an ethnic brand. Because A, there's no money in it. And B, you know, you end up on the bottom shelves um, in, in, in the supermarkets and people don't really take it sort of serious. So I decided I wanted to, in a sense, establish my British credentials uh, rather than black being seen as foreign black being seen also as equally British. And therefore, what I wanted to do was to create something that was a very quintessentially British product, i.e. a sausage. <laughs> and the reason why I went for a sausage is because a lot of British people love their sausages. So I thought, I'm going to create a sausage, a fantastic sausage that was gluten-free. And that's my way of starting off by showing people that being black is also part of the mainstream. Absolutely. And I love that you put the jerk flavor with that as well. It's delicious. That's right. Yeah. So what I've recently done is that I'm there celebrating my heritage by having some jerk um, sausage products as well. Yeah. I think it's nice because then, you know, people who may not have experienced the jerk flavor before can widen their palate as well. Exactly. So, I mean, if you think that, um, Indian curry, I'm a dras or a tikka, what is it called, a tikka? A tikka masala. Yeah, tikka masala has now become very much part of the British um, diet. That's exactly what I would like jerk to do. Yeah, and that's definitely possible because it's delicious. Um, I've ordered your products as well, and and I've shared your website with family and friends. I'm not just saying this because you're on my podcast, but we really enjoyed eating the meat and the products in the box. What have things been like during COVID? Have you experienced quite a lot of changes? Well, COVID has been really good for us, really, because mm. it, you know it's been it's it's pretty awful out there for for, for a lot of people losing their jobs, you know, being furloughed, massive uncertainty out there. But you see, I think with all of these things, you know, I believe that where there is change, there's a massive opportunity. And those who could see there is an opportunity are those who are going to do well in the future. And in a sense, I've always been prepared for something like a pandemic. And this is one of the things about, in a sense, having dyslexia really has been a help. Because if you're dyslexic, you're always having to live with uncertainty. And therefore, I'm not frightened of uncertainty. 
And then in these uncertain times that we live in, I'm not frightened of uncertainty. You know, I can see that um, uncertainty can be a gift. It's all about making a friend of uncertainty. And that what I've decided to do is to see that the world has changed and therefore we need to change fast with it. And whereas before a lot of my food products were sold through the supermarkets, I've started to sell online and it's been doing really, really well. Yeah. So my, my big passion is to create a fantastic hub for all sorts of people to come online to buy all sorts of foods. We're going to be launching a Caribbean selection of foods. Um, oh, cool. okay. as well. a much, much wider choice. But my ultimate ambition is to have a Black Farmer farm shop, um, bricks and mortar farm shop, mm. become a destination. So anybody going down to the southwest, they'll be saying, we must stop off at the Black Farmer farm shop. Ooh, yeah. where it's a place where you can go and buy food. There'll be restaurants. There'll be conference centers. People could even get married at the Black Farmer um, um, farm shop. That's the sort of thing that I want for the sort of future, where mm-hmm. really it becomes a gateway for people of color to say, right, this is a Pathfinder brand that um, you know we could come and you know, get some work experience in mm. and see what is possible. But that that is a big ambition of mine to have my own farm shop, um, bricks and mortar farm shop. That would be amazing. I can picture it. Like I can literally picture it, and I think it would be amazing. And if you could give like opportunity to other people of color, young people, of course, would absolutely appreciate this. My friend has literally just left to go to America to work on a farm to gain experience to one day maybe open her own farm as well. And I think that kind of experience, people would be willing. I would be willing to kind of work for free just to gain that experience um, because you know it would be so valuable to to understand certain things about farming so that you could then go on to create something of your own or work somewhere you know it's so important exactly I'm excited for you (laughs) um I also know from um, talking to you and reading your posts online that you have been um, battling with sickness yourself um, with cancer. And I think, you know, most people's initial thought might be to just rest or put everything on hold. But you kept going. And that really, to me, is just so inspiring like there's to me now I feel like there's no excuse so why was this important for you did this help you to carry on with your business as as you are well actually it's really interesting what you just said uh just to give your audience just a bit of backstory here about seven years ago I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia and if there's one thing you do not want to get in your life is acute myeloid leukemia because most people die from it. And that the only, I can remember when I got it and my consultant said, well, we've got one of two choices here. We either send you home with some uh, tablets and you'll be dead within three months or we do very risky, uh, like with a, a stem cell transplant uh, which they don't like doing because most people die from a, a stem cell transplant. Mm-hmm. I was the wrong age as well because, you know, there's a certain age where they just don't, you know, it's just so brutal on your body, they just don't actually give it to you. So I was just just in that right belt. And then fundamentally what they, the, it's only cancer they could cure, but that the, you need to get a stem cell transplant in order for it to be cured. And that um, what they tend to do is they try and find a match. um, And that normally comes from your family. Now, you would think that within a family of nine, there'd be an easy match. Not one of them was a match. Oh, wow. What they do is that they're going to do a worldwide search to see whether they could find a match. Now, being being a black person, because there's so few people on the register, Mm -hmm. they couldn't find a match. So one of the things I'd be saying to any of your listeners if they and if they're either mixed race or they're black, please try and get onto the, the donors list because Absolutely. a lot of black people are dying because not enough people of color are on that list. Yeah. Anyhow, they couldn't find a match there, and then luckily the hospital that I um, was um, 
um, being treated was, you know, quite well renowned throughout the world for um, what they call haplotransplants, which is quite revolutionary treatment. But they thought, well, there was no other option, so they decided to to, um, to go for that, which meant that it wasn't getting a full match from people, but like a half match. And, um, you know, then the process started, and it is brutal. It is absolutely brutal. And that, you know, there's only, it's the only time in my life where I felt that death was really preferable than what I was sort of uh, going through. Mm. And I wrote a book actually about this and uh, other things called Jeopardy, the danger of playing it safe. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot about my experience in that book. But eventually, I was in hospital for about a year, but eventually, you know, it's gradually, very, very slowly, I started to get better. And it was seven years ago that this happened, and um, you, five years, and then you're sort of, you know, you're, you're put into the um, all clear group. Now, one of the legacies of having um, uh, a stem cell transplant is I have something they call graft versus host disease. Now, if we were visually you'd be able to look at my face and you'll see that and um, my a lot of my pigmentation has gone okay. uh, on my face and my back and my nails and all that sort of stuff and that's one of the consequences of the stem cell transplant because mm-hmm. what happens is that your old immune system is attacking the, the new immune system and you just have a a, a lifetime of um problems and you know with that the reason i'm coughing for example is because you know, it's left with sort of some scarring on the lungs. Now, every day I look in the mirror, I know that this was a day that I should never be here. I shouldn't be alive. And I'm only alive because of science and because I was born and at the right time. And so I'm luckier than most because I know that actually I have to justify why I was given the extra time. I, you know, when I look back at the last seven years, I just think life is good. There's so much that has happened in seven years that I would not have seen, I would not have experienced. And I feel um, enriched by those experiences. I feel grateful to have had those sort of experiences. So therefore, life for me is very, very precious. I know that I, I, I'm lucky to be here and that I've, I'm on borrowed times. Now, it does a number of things. It means that I do not have the angst that a lot of people have in terms of thinking about their long-term future and thinking about the consequences. I know that you know, by all rights, I should not be here. And therefore, I've got to make every hour, every day, um, a value worth something. Yeah. And then it all comes down to, well, how do you measure your life in terms of a life being me, have, having meaning? And for me, that's all about, well, what do you leave behind? How have you impacted other people's lives? How have you helped people? How have you helped them on their journey? Absolutely. That is how a life is worth living. Even to have this conversation with you during this podcast. If someone is listening to this podcast and it helps to inspire them, it helps them in terms of whatever they may going through their lives, the seven years extra that I have been given has been worth it. So that is how I measure um, uh, my life now, is that are you doing something to make people's lives different? And with COVID coming along, um, again, having gone through um, that sort of cancer, I've been used to living with uncertainty Mm. and not being frightened of uncertainty and just to be very grateful and to treat every life as something very special. Yeah, in a way, it's you. I guess it's made you more resilient, so it, it you become fearless. And exactly, fearless is a really good way of putting it because most people's lives are controlled by fear. Yes, and fear is a construct. It's not real. It's pictures that people have in their heads, and it's sort of fear was an important tool when we lived in prehistoric times, where you know it was a bloody mm, battle. Yeah. That you needed that, but so fear has now be- is now redundant, and that the whole structures of our society is built and tapping that fear gene. And if you if you think about it for a moment, if you think about the, the messages that we're getting constantly, the news on the news, it's always about 
pushing the fear button. Mm-hmm. Think about the books people read, the TV programs, the movies. I say it's always about pushing that peep that button, that fear button. Mm-hmm. You know, the people, um, their decisions in life are pushing that button about. Well, what happens if I lose my job? What happens with this? It's always constantly pushing that fear button. And if people could learn that if they stop that happening, they will be free. And I think that one of the great challenges that we all have in life is how to control that fear button because it's not serving us well. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree 100%. And if we could abolish that fear, it would be such a different world <laughs> that we'd be living in. Um Going back just quickly to your your kind of like black farmer products, um, I know that you um, approached some um, big uh, retailers um, in the food industry about diversity. Um, I think that you were kind of, you know, this was during the time of maybe the BLM protests. And then, of course, we had Black History Month. Um, how did they kind of respond to you um, when you wanted to put out your packaging with um, the face of inspirational uh, people in history, such as Mary Seacole and um, some of the other people that you had on there. How did they respond to that? Well, one of the things about the the food industry is that you don't find many black people in the food industry. Yeah, Uh, It's very, very much a a closed shop. And um, I think that... Black people need to wise up to this um, because you know their money is just as important as white people's money, and therefore they should be demanding that more of them are rep- rep- being represented in the supermarkets. Now, I think because the Black Lives Matter, things are starting to gradually change, but there's a long way that they could they could go. And um, I recognise that I'm in a very privileged um, position, mm. and therefore it is my responsibility to be trying to bring about change. And if that's um, taking on the supermarkets head on, I will do that. And also holding their feet to the fire to try and get them to change. Hmm. And um, after the Black Lives Matter movement last year, I just thought, right, I have to try and do my bit to bring about change. And so I went and approached all of the supermarkets to see where they could get behind Um, Black History Month in October. And it was a very simple concept that um, I would create two jerk products, a jerk chicken sausage, a a pork jerk, uh, and 10p from every pack of those sausages would go towards two black um, charities. One, the Mary Sequel Trust. The other one, the the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton. And the Black Cultural Archives is there to educate people about black history in, in, in Britain. So I went to all of them. Some of them said yes. Some of them said no. Mm. The great irony is that um, the real challenges um, was from the sort of the the, the discounters, the the, the places where people of colour go and do a lot of their shopping. Mm, Okay. Um, And um, even today, I'm still constantly fighting those guys to um, um, sort of help the community rather than just just focus on their their own sort of profit. Exactly. what I see is this. The black farmer is not just there to sell food products. It's a purpose-driven business. Hmm. We have to use our um, positioning and our profile to bring about change. And if I don't do that, how is it going to be for young black people trying to get a foot into the door? They're not going to stand a chance unless people like me stand up and say, right, we need to do something to bring about a change. So I will continue doing that, and it's the least I think that I could do. Absolutely, Wilfred, and that's why I really admire you as well, and that's why I wanted to start a podcast so that I could get on more people with more voice. You know, their voices need to be heard, and it's important for me that I'm representing a diverse um, audience as well. So um, if I can get as many inspiration, inspirational people on as possible um, that have a lot to say, that can inspire others, who can educate, then you know, I'm all for it. And as you know, this podcast is growing quite well. And um, I'm just happy that I'm able to reach uh, audiences that need to hear this. 
brilliant. I mean, I think, you know, I have to admire people like you, really, you know, putting yourself out there, trying to bring about the change. You need to be admired because, A, it's not easy, and B, trying to do something, you should be applauded for it. Thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. Um, now moving on to my favourite part of the show, which is pets and animals. Can you tell us a bit about your life and journey with pets so far? Well, it may be your favourite part of the programme, but you know, <laughs> I ain't really um, a pet person. Okay. So Murphy, he's not my dog, he's my, I... my other half's dog, really. Ah, uh, okay. If you wanted to talk about pets, she would talk about pets until the cows come home. She loves, she loves her cats, <laughs> she loves her dogs, etc. Uh, and um, I think that for me, you know, they're a bit sort of um, sort of demanding. Mm. And I think because I've been so focused on trying to bring about change, I don't really have as much time to um, you know spend with animals as I should. But living in the country, you'd be a fool not to have animals. So we have cats and we, well, my wife has cats and she has dogs. And they're they're brilliant, especially when you you live in um, a secluded part of the world because they're your security system. So that's that's as much as I I wouldn't be regarding myself as a dog lover and an animal lover. I just see that it has a sort of a functional use. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that as well, because, you know, on the farm, of course, you know, you have animals, right? That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And so, again, so animals, you see, the, the thing is with animals is that, you know, I just don't understand people who can keep animals in a way that's just not good for their well-being. And yeah. every creature senses, uh, senses things and that. Every every creature needs to have some balance and some sort of um, well-being, and so you know, when you think about some of these the mass production they do, especially in the, in the states, I mean that sort of stuff. It just changed my sort of stomach because anybody who spends any times with any animal knows that they could sense and they could feel things, and therefore you should treat them like you would treat a further human being. And if you don't, I just think, you know, you are not being kind in terms of another creature's um, feelings, uh, which I think is really important. Actually, I heard, interestingly enough, that it can kind of affect the way, I don't know if this is true, but it can affect the way the meat tastes as well, mm-hmm. if, if the animal has been treated very, badly. Very, 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 very true. So what happens okay. is... Yeah, so part of the theory is that if an animal is stressed before it's sorted, before it's slaughtered, the, it will then tense up, and so the meat then will become um, very, um, very tough. Ah. So, um, the the whole process is not to stress the animal, because if animals are stressed, it's not going to the meat's not going to taste good at all. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. I thought it was just maybe something that somebody that's had made up. But very, very important that actually the whole process needs to be handled with um, with care and humanity. Yes, absolutely, and I'm sure that you know your animals have free reign to to roam. Is that right? Do they have like some grazing? Oh yeah, yeah. So all, all I do is my um, the sort of farming that I do is that they just do grazing. We do finishing, i.e. Yeah. They come to eat the lovely grass and then they will go from us to slaughter or go yeah. on to another farmer. But we don't do any breeding or anything like that. So okay. generally my farm we have it's it's a dairy farm. So the the animals come out to be milked, uh, they come out to be um to be fed on the grass and then they're going to be milked twice a day. I don't do the milking. My next door neighbor does that. And then also we'll have beef cattle that will come and eat the grass which is absolutely delicious for them. Yes, it is very nutritious and I'm sure they're happy and I think that's so important, especially for me when I'm I, I'm a meat eater. So I take particular care where I definitely buy you know my meat from. So that's why I was attracted to to your brand as well, because you know I know that you're ethical and um your things are free range. So um that's what really attracted me to your brand. 
Um, but lastly, um, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your accounts online and, and even your book, where can they find you? Oh, well, thanks for that. I mean, if they go on to my website, um, it, which is um, theblackfarmer.com, a, a, it's a shop where they could buy a range of stuff. And also, uh, in the next month, we're going to be selling, you know, we do meat at the moment, we do meat, we do cheeses, but we're going to extend into doing fish. We're okay. also going to be having a sort of um, Caribbean um, um, produce there. And um, we deliver all all over the country, so that would be no problem to get to wherever they're sort of living. And then also on the website, they'll find out things about my book, find out things um, a bit about me. And then when when we're outside of COVID times, we also have um, a couple of barns on on the property, which we then sort of uh, um, let out to people for holidays. So again, if people wanted to come and visit the farm that'd be uh, a really nice place to come and visit. The book, my book, The Jeopardy, The Black Farm, Jeopardy, The Danger of Playing It Safe. If anybody is thinking about change, any change in their lives, and they're serious about change, that is the book to read because it's there to try and help people as they're trying to make big fundamental changes in their lives. Yes, it's true. And um, I think I'm definitely going to be patching that book because it sounds really, really interesting. And um, it's it's nice that you're willing to share your life as well um, with your audience, because I think it's so important to connect a person to a brand. Well, thank you. I mean, it's been a delight talking to you. And, you know, thank you very much for inviting me on. You too. This is going to be very useful for you and, and, and your listeners. I think it will, absolutely. I also just want to comment your your um the customer service um that I received behind your brand is just amazing. I spoke to a lady called Michaela and she was just so helpful and really, really nice um to communicate with online um in regards to my order with you. So I just want to say thank you well, to well, tell her that because it is something I'm fanatical as a business, is that look after the customer. In this day and age, people are so terrible when it comes to looking after customers. Yeah. You know, I'm so pleased that you said that about the Black Farmer because it, it, it is a major thing for me. We really look after our customers. So thank Absolutely. You. No, thank you. Thank you. It's been amazing speaking to you. Um, I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. And same with you. And thank you very much again for your time. Thank you. Goodbye. thank you so much for listening to this podcast we have some amazing guests on the show who share such invaluable advice stories and inspiration can you do me a favor if you like this podcast please could you rate review and subscribe this will help us reach people who can benefit from listening Another way you could help is if you could tell a friend who you think might enjoy this podcast too. See you next week. Goodbye.